Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna-Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers to thrive on camera and in life and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the word showrunner. In television, the showrunner is the person who has overall creative authority and management responsibility for a program. They literally run the show. In comedies and dramas, it is very common for the showrunner to be the creator and or head writer. Here to discuss is my favorite showrunner, Jim Biederman, whom I've had the pleasure of working for. Jim is a seasoned executive producer, showrunner, writer, and director specializing in comedy programming with expertise in creating, developing, and producing sketch comedy, long-form narrative, panel programming, and live event programming, including both multicam and single camera. Jim has produced hundreds of hours of television and guided such trailblazing comedy shows as The Kids in the Hall, The Howard Stern Radio Show, The Widest Kids You Know, The Onion News Network, Would You Rather with Graham Norton, where I got to work with Jim as his talent executive. That's right. And The Big Gay Sketch Show, among gajillion others. So welcome, Jim Biederman. Hi. Thank you so much for making time to do this. No problem. I mean, I think my response was immediate when you sent the email. And I think it was, of course. (laughs) Why would I not? It's Barbara Barnett. Oh, well, I want to talk. So I love the topic of showrunner for a yeah. variety of reasons, but, you know, also from as a coach and an executive coach, mm-hmm. the showrunner is the leader. And I, mm-hmm. I love conversations around leadership. So, you know, one is like, how do you step <clears throat> into becoming a showrunner? Well, I've done this a long time. And when I started, and, and the reason I bring up the amount of time, it's not so much that that has given me the ability to do it. It's, it is a testament to how much the industry has changed. Mm. I worked for a guy named Jeff Ross, who went on to be the executive producer of Conan's show and still works with Conan, um, who was at the time, we were both working at Broadway Video, which is Lauren Michaels company. But uh, Jeff was the EP on the executive producer on, but not showrunner per se, of the kids in the hall. Now we can make the distinction of, well, there's show running executive producers and non-show running executive producers and writing executive producers, non-writing. When you have an executive producer credit, it's you're important to someone. I don't know who, <laughs> but um, he uh, left to do Conan's uh, late night show, the 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 Letterman replacement, and Lauren. Michaels didn't have anyone to deal with the kids, which was being done up in Toronto. And I had worked by extension by adjacent to Jeff in that role. And he said, Lauren said, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a comedy producer like you. He said, great trial by fire. And he literally threw me into that, into that job working with the kids. And now I knew the kids, the kids are genuinely genuinely nice people of course they're canadian so of course they're nice but um they're also funny as hell i knew nothing i went to film school i knew nothing about television and back then film and television were very very different industries not only um in terms of what they made but how they made it Mm -hmm. so the equivalent i guess in today's language the showrunner is your film director in the auteur theory of they are running the whole shebang um but 
that said, everything at the time was different. I mean, you edited it on film, not video. Like it was it just everything. You only had one camera, maybe two. You know, all of a sudden we were doing, I was walked into a place where it's like, there's five cameras. And it's like, I knew nothing. And I had the wherewithal at a relatively young age to go, okay, I'm going to swallow my pride and just ask anytime there's questions. Um, and yeah, they're going to be stupid questions. I know they're going to be stupid questions. That's not the point. I don't know the answer. So I have no idea how stupid they are. So I'm not going to get embarrassed. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask the questions. And I did. And I asked question after question. Why do you do this? Why do you do that first? Why don't you do it this way? It seems to me you'd want to do it. And what I found was, you know, look, there's always assholes, but most people enjoy telling you what they do. And they want to tell you about what their job is. And they want to show their expertise. So when you say to an editor or you say to a producer or you say to a cameraman or you say to a gaffer, why, why are you doing that? They will stop and tell you. And it all depends on how you ask it. But it's like they will stop and tell you. And they will explain to you because they're proud of their work. And your job is to basically just listen at that point. And that's what I did for uh, the entire run of the kids. I was on for the remaining two and a half years. I asked questions and, um, and I never really made any decisions until I'd asked those questions. And so that's how I learned. And once I had that credit, people believed I was a showrunner. When did you believe you were a showrunner? Uh, yesterday. I just decided. <laughs> after 35 years i um no I, it took a long time mm -hmm. because there was always there's always something i didn't know and you go into these meetings and look i'm a great bullshit artist but i would go into some meetings and someone would say well, it was something with a bunch of initials that i you know well, what's our rattle rah, rah and i'd be like i you know <laughs> that's a great question and i would just kind of paper it over and then i would immediately try to find out what the of that was about so um wait that's a natural media training trick by the way too if you get thrown for a loop in an interview oh really yes like, no, you, you, i you love roller skating i was yeah. a roller skating champ acknowledge and validate because it right. goes back to what you're saying is everyone wants to feel heard yeah and just interrupting you for one second sure the other thing you tapped into there that you didn't actually identify was you sh not only are you listening but you're showing respect to the members of your team 100%. and as and as someone who has worked for you on more than one project you always show respect to everybody. I try, I, I find it much more, well, let me tell you this. So I just did a series called What Alive, Would I Lie to You in a panel show for a UK panel show for the US with, um, for the CW with the Robert, with Robert and Michelle King and Asif Manvi and incredible guests. And I loved talking to the cameramen who are these grizzled, you know, you know, probably drunk i'm I'm gonna guess but just real like longshoremen almost you know they're all the stevedores of television exactly exactly <laughs> and i remember walking into and the show was funny and i remember walking into the studio all the cameramen were on the panel dais the director was in the host's seat and they were playing their own homemade version of the game which is basically lie, you know two truths and a lie and I knew at that moment, and they were having so much fun playing this game. I just sat back and I watched. I thought, oh, this, this is an easy show to understand. 
for an audience. And so I have great respect for me. They're my audience in the, in the, in the, in the room, in the, in the shoot is the cameraman. So I'm always, I know all their names. I know what's going on with their lives to the extent that I do. I make sure they get gifts. I want them to know that uh, their job is as important as mine and probably some cases arguably more. So it's, I think it's, it's really, really important because a happy crew you know, a, it, you know, it doesn't, there's no mutiny, but more importantly, they, they go that extra mile for you because that's what you need to do in building a team as a showrunner. You need everyone to go the extra mile. There's two ways of going about it. The fear based version or the, I respect you version. So, so don't let me down. Right. But, you know, I've seen both. I've, I've worked for people who've done both. And I can tell you just being on the receiving end, I don't like the fear version so much, but I do like the version where, geez, Barbara asked me to do this. And then she wants to know what my opinion is. And I may not always get what I think is right. It might be group voted out, but I know Barbara's listening to me and I respect that. And you know what? I'll work on Saturday for her. I'll work on Sunday for her. And, and I'll tell you why she never asks me to, but I will anyway. And so that's, that's the vibe you want to create. Creative enterprises are by their very nature, tortured, nightmarish, <laughs> you know, difficult births. Um, everyone thinks their opinion is right. Everyone has an opinion and the more forceful personalities will attempt to steamroll you. Um, myself included. And I think that, you know, and it is a little bit of Lord of the Flies, a little bit of who's going to win this, um, who's going to get the conch. And the goal is to, I feel, is to kind of smooth that out a bit because I, I'm not a kind of, I'm not a believer in the, it has to be tortured for it to be good. I just, I think that's a 19th century romantic ideal mm -hmm. of the tortured artist. I think it's crap. I think there are people who I've worked with who are not tortured, who are um, not to say they're not difficult, but they're not tortured. It's not coming from a, I'm tortured. So I'm going to torture you mm -hmm. position. It's, is it funny enough? Does this make sense? Like they really think their shit through thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly over and over. I respect that. And I can relate to that. But that's a different vibe than, you know, what's that great, you know, Catherine O'Hara and Beetlejuice where she turns to her husband and says, we're buying that house or I'm going to, I'm going insane and I'm taking you with me. Like it's, that's, you don't want to be in that. Mm -hmm. And so my goal as a showrunner is always to make sure that everyone definitely feels uh, welcome at the table, but also valued at the table. But, and most importantly, that I know you think what you do isn't important for this show, but it's super important for this show. And I try and make it, you know, I've had situations where recently, even on like what I lied to you, which we did last year, where one of the producers screwed up and it was, oh, this is like gossip, 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 gossip. Jim's not going to like this. Jim's not going to like it. And I got it. I was like, okay and i found her and she was in tears and she said i know i'm gonna quit i was like first of all one it's just tv okay that's let's 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 get a baseline here two don't do it again yeah you screwed up whoop-de-doo let me tell you a story i worked on on um, um desperately seeking susan i had a job it's my first job out of film school 
And my job was to sit in the truck overnight that had all the film equipment that they had parked on 11th Avenue and all the way downtown, they were shooting. And it was like, the only thing I had to do was stay awake. And that was it. And I was like, this is a piece of cake. I was going to make so much money. I was like, maybe a hundred dollars. That was so much money. And that's going to be easy. I'm, I stay up late anyway. You know, I have all these rational. Cut to, you know, literally on the window. I rolled down the window. Hello? That's the producer, segment producer, whatever it was, producer. He goes, how long have you been asleep? I was like, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't a fall. I didn't fall asleep. He goes, oh, really? So did they steal the entire contents of the truck in the last five minutes? Or I was like, what are you talking about? I was asleep. And someone had come in and cracked the padlock, opened the back of the truck and took everything out. And I was mortified. And obviously, and I said, I, 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 he goes, leave, leave. I said, well, I should pick up my check. No, leave. I never want to see you again. I thought I was it. I was done. I was d- never working in this town again. And I told the story to that woman, to this producer. And I said, you know what? Turned out okay. Turned out Wait, fine. Okay, that's a brilliant story. So what happens with your young self who feels like was, I'm never going to work again? How long did it take you to be like, uh, apply or to work through that, the horror? A the couple shame? years, a couple years. Mm. I had a friend who did legal proofreading. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember legal proofreading. That paid a lot of money. Paid a lot of money. Ooh, yeah. And so I, this is for all those listening, kind of not pre-computers, but basically it was, we word still processing. needed, we still needed humans to correct mm-hmm. the word processing. Cause you know, humans at the time were still great. They're not anymore. So, um, I, and I got that job and it was just, it was great money and it was, you know, it was, it was hard work, but it was relatively easy work. And in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, so how do I, how do I, maybe if enough time goes away, they, my name won't be like, as if they put my name on a bulletin board, like do not hire this guy. He falls asleep and your equipment will be stolen. Like it's That's like, like your name with the bad checks in the bodega. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One of the things that I've, and I tell people this a lot of time that I learned in that is that first of all, I don't remember that guy's name and he doesn't remember my name. Uh, and probably a day later, he didn't remember my name, but the only person who cares about your shit is you. And, and, and that goes two ways. One is like, this is something I'm really, really passionate about. Great. You are potentially no one else is, but that shouldn't stop you. And then the other side of that, no one cares about your shit other than you is when you fuck up, like, Oh my God, they're all going to know. No, they don't care. Cause you know what? They got their own shit. They got to deal with. And so I think once I kind of came to that realization, I was like, Oh, okay. Don't do that again. <laughs> Don't don't take a job where you fall asleep. And a friend of mine said, oh, there's this woman. She's a Japanese woman and she runs this film. They're buying films for Japanese home video. You should interview with her. And it literally was like that. And I worked for her for a year and a half. That was interesting. Working with the Japanese is very interesting. Um, but we did home movies, uh, midnight movies, which the Japanese had no conflict. Why would you watch a movie at midnight? And um it, it one of the things that taught me really was this oh think we are really different americans are really different like our entertainment is different our comedy is different our everything is different and so it, we got down to like there would be this packaging this is back in the day with home videos where you get your vhs tape that people are not even gonna know what i'm talking about and it would come in this booklet 
And the booklet literally in Japanese would say, how do you throw a midnight movie party? And it would tell you like, basically it would say things like, this is how you're spontaneous, how to be spontaneous. Like, well, mm, stop right there. So this um, is fantastic. But I do want to ask you, since you brought up interesting question, the now developing comedy programming, any programming really, but in a global streaming world. I don't know when last time we talked about, but I went to China to do some comedy in 2018. And I had had a meeting. It's, I was used to be represented at CAA, no longer represented here. And uh, that's a whole other story. But um, I went in and they said, well, we're having all our producers meet these, these Ch- this Chinese production company. I was like, oh, so they got some comedy show. I was like, but I don't speak Chinese. Like, they don't care. <laughs> and I came in to this meeting and there were seven or eight uh, Chinese men and women and one translator. They spoke no English. I spoke no Chinese. Obviously this translator spoke both. And they would ask me these really philosophical questions about comedy. It, believe it or not, they would blah, 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 blah. And then it'd be translated and it'd be like, what in your mind is the essence of comedy? I'm just here for a fucking job interview. So I said, you know, I love talking about comedy. So I pontificated and they would all nod their heads. And then the next question would be even more in depth. I just kind of think, I think in my head, like, this is fucking crazy. I leave the meeting. I talk to my agent, man, what else is going on? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I leave. Four months later, my agent says, Hey, so those people want you in Shanghai in about two weeks. I was like, what people, what are you talking about? He said, the people you came in. I was like, Oh my God, I completely forgot about it. He said, yeah. He goes, can you be in Shanghai in two weeks? I said, no, I could be there in three weeks. And they're like, okay, back and forth. You couldn't imagine how hard it is to get a visa for China. But um, I go there and I did three shows. I did um, I did two shows and one was kind of a consulting. But back and forth for about a year, uh, Shanghai and Beijing. And um, they were comedy shows. One was a sketch show. But they called it Oriental Nights and it was like their Saturday Night Live except it wasn't live and it wasn't on Saturday night. Um, but it was hosted by usually a celebrity. And then they had this cast of young comics and that, and I really loved working with the writers, which was fascinating working through a translator and with the, ta- with the talent we're in like all around 2025, 20, the Chinese have a millennial generation. Like we do, they are the single largest demographic group in their culture, except times like ours times a bazillion because they have 1.4 billion people. So I don't know, 800 million of them are millennials and they would all say things in their best English. They'd say, I want to be Amy Schumer. If you're a woman or my favorite, I want to be Dave Chappelle. If you're a guy, I was like, uh, okay. So how was it would, similar and how was it different? It was not similar at all. It was, well, I would say it was similar in the extent of you. Ambition? Yeah. But just the technical, like you make the TV show that, you know, you put your pants on the same way. So, you know, there's a camera and there's a light. There was an Italian lighting guy there who was so happy to speak to anyone other than Chinese. And he Stefano. And he's like, gee, my God, you're so happy. <laughs> um, but everyone else was Chinese. Most spoke no English. Um, and so let me tell you how it's different. So the comedy. So I started really researching Chinese comedy. Their first sitcom was in 1985. So. It's a very immature, if you will, industry. Nascent. Nascent, shall we say. The other thing is that I've kind of uncovered is that we have 26, I believe, letters in our alphabet. They have 2,400 characters in their alphabet, which is more of a pictogram-based, right? And 
they have and pronunciation means everything. So Mao, which I don't know if that means anything, but it could be mom or it could be cow. It, you know, it depends on how you say it and the context with it. So the best way of I read anyone kind of translating it, so, so to speak, was the way they structure a sentence is the we say that yeah that's my car the white car that's mine the white car they'll say my car it has some white in it it's a much more passive much more um uh arguably nuanced way or i would say probably natural way of because yeah your car does have some white it's not all white it just looks white to us the way our eyes interpret white so it's like you can understand so everything becomes super nuanced and it has different layers and they're really into wordplay because of it, because one word can mean four different things depending Ooh. on how you say it. So it's a lot of who's on first, lots of who's on first. Um, and once I realized that it just like, it like, Oh, okay. I get it. But then they would have other weird things like the Chinese government, the lots of censorship. Mm. And they would say, you can't say that. You can't do this. But they also had this whole thing that like, you can't do any ghost stories unless it takes, because that's supernatural that's religion that is what kept that's the opium of the masses that's what kept us from being a great modern nation before we were 19 before 1949 if you want to make a story that takes place pre-1949 and you present it as the old bad china go right ahead but you can't do a modern day zombie story or anything supernatural if it's past 1949 because i don't know if you know this but the chinese government fixed everything after 1940 so there's no problems there's no problems there so um that and so it's that operating in that world but then also kind of seeing this generation that has access to youtube even though shh, they don't they don't get it uh but they do because they use vpns and they get around it and they watch it anyway until they till that gets blocked um going yeah i want to do that I, they're the global audience right that you're speaking of in your question but they're still Chinese. And so I remember sitting with one um, group of writers, like 10 or 12 writers, and their head writer was pitching me and he would say, and obviously it's all through translator. So we have a sketch about a guy on an airplane and he's, he's really nervous. He doesn't want to be on the plane. He's freaking out. I was like, Oh, that's great. Okay. Good premise. Good premise. Heard it a million times, but fine. And he goes, and you know, the, the flight attendant keeps coming up and saying, um, sir, is there anything that can get you? No, no, we're going to crash. We're going to, you really have to calm down, sir. She keeps coming back. She, she starts to like finally plying him with alcohol. And finally he just freaks out so much that she walks down the aisle purposefully and then slaps him across the face, slaps him into submission. We all laugh. And the guy goes, no, 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 there's more. <laughs> At this moment, a dragon comes down the aisle. <laughs> they wet themselves laughing. And I'm like, what? I don't, what just happened? And he goes, a dragon. And I said, oh, you mean like a like a paper, like a New Year's Day Chinese name? No, no, a real dragon. <laughs> and they're laughing their asses off. And I'm thinking, I go, ah, like trying to play along. I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, that sounds great. Write it up. The other thing is they'll do sketches that are 10 minutes long and they'll have a commercial interruption in the middle of the sketch and come back to it. Like they don't, the concept of the way they think is so foreign because of the way they speak and how they the way that language informs the way they see the world is so difficult to map out. And then on top of that, it's a nascent, immature comedy business. Look, the the English and Americans have uh, probably 150 years we've had of 
we're to get to where we are now to get to UCB, basically, right to get to sketch and all these things, but it's super subtle. And it's super like our audiences are really tuned in, they totally know what's happening. And there it's very presentational and just the facts. And of course, you, you can't criticize a lot of things. So you're doing a lot of relationship jokes, like a lot of mother in law jokes, but you're also doing a lot of Oh, I thought you said, no, I said this. Oh, isn't that what I said? Like that, a lot of wordplay. And once you kind of realize that you go, okay, I can, I can work with this because you know what? The punchlines are always still, there's still the construction still the same, right? Mm. The, the way you tell stories, maybe, you know, you throw some dragons in, but it's like, it's, it's ultimately still kind of the same. There's, you know, so you still have a flow to the narrative that you're telling them. But the one thing I found really, really fascinating was that, Oh, so I, I asked, so there was an, a kind of a, a, a Chinese guy who had actually started a second city in Beijing, um, who grew up in Queens, but just wanted to move back to China. And I asked him, his name was Eric, if that in fact was his real name. And I said, Eric, like, I don't get the dragon thing. And he said, we well, have to understand, we really see things differently. <laughs> and it's funny to us. That non sequitur is hilariously funny. Whereas for most Americans, they'd go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I, I started to have this kernel of like, what's the, what's that one thing that we, is it the banana peel? Is that the thing we all agree on is funny that, you know, it's the great Mel Brooks line of, if if I trip and fall, it's you know. Uh, uh, if you trip and fall, it's hilarious. If I trip and fall, it's a disaster. It's it's a tragedy, and so is the banana peel the same? Is that that you know? Is that the same thing that we all? And then at what point do we start to like out distance our our, our other countries? And I and and the kind of Anglo-Saxon, for lack of a better, or I should say, American English comedic history which includes vaudeville and music hall and television and radio and early movies, but also then Nichols and May compass theater, second city, all the way at uh, Saturday night live all the way up. And in, and in the Brits case, obviously Monty Python being really important, but the goons, the goon squad of goon show before that, um, they really build on each other to the point where we're, where we are now comedically. And it goes in sitcoms, everything. And now, Imagine if you woke up tomorrow in America and all of that history didn't happen. It's only happened in the last 20 years. Where would you be comedically? You'd be at a very, from our point of view, simple place, right? So it, uh, but I became really, 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 and you know this because I do a lot of UK translation shows. Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm, I lived in LA for a while. I did not really particularly like it, but it, there's a lot of work there. Um, but I, when I came back to New York, one of the reasons I came back was to work on this show called Have I Got News For You, which is a huge panel show in the UK, uh, which is a news quiz show. It's been on for 33 years. And I'm still, I still work with that company, Hattrick Productions. But what it did was I was like, oh, wow, there, if you actually face East, there's this whole other world <laughs> that exists. Whereas in California, where even, you know, even, certainly in New York, but in, definitely in Los Angeles, you're just always, you're not looking any direction. You're just, it's a company yep. town, your head's down. And I realized like, well, how does comedy work in a global marketplace? Mm -hmm. And it really is one of those, you know, uh, uh, think global, act local, right? Um, and you have to appreciate the, how important culture and society and even down to the, the community or 
the two mile radius that you live in, what happens in those worlds and why that's funny to that person and the people who live there. And then you can kind of build out from there, you know? I think that um, that's the way to do it. But it was a fascinating thing. So I did that sketch show, Oriental Nights, love the name. And then um, and then I did that well. And I guess I passed the muster with my communist overlords. And I they called me back to do a their first ever, uh, they called it Rock and Roast, which was a roast battle. Now keep understand, this is fascinating. They didn't, they don't have a big stand-up tradition. So stand-up is relatively new there too. And then you definitely don't roast your, you know, your comrades. That's like antithesis of, you know, Marxism. So, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to kill the bad ca capitalist if you guys are all pissing on each other? No, we have to work as one team. So, um, but they really saw internationally that that was a, a model. That was a genre. So we're doing this rock and roast thing. And for the life of me, I didn't know, the jokes made no sense to me, but they would just basically kind of slightly make fun of each other, not too much. And the censor comes in the uh, three nights before we start taping the 13 episodes. And they watch our dress rehearsal. And then I'm summoned to the, the show, Chinese showrunner's office. And he says to me, he spoke English, and he said, we need to add an act to the show. Now, by the way, their sense of time acts like we have an, you know, kind of rule of some here in the United States. 30 minutes, that's good enough for comedy. An hour for comedy, you're pushing your luck. They would have like an hour and 15, an hour 37. Like it didn't, it just had no, there was no nothing. And we were already at an hour 37. And I was like, another act is, yeah. And I was like, why? I said, well, they told us we have to do it. They said, if we don't do it, they won't let us air. And I was like, what is it that they want us to do? They said, they call it the joy act. All right. And it, they want them to basically say to the comics that they've been shitting on each other to say, I know that we, we've we had fun here tonight and I've made fun of you and your family, but I want you to know I love you. Now, I, I'm like, that what? That's a comedy killer. What are you talking about? You, you go in for the kill. You know, comedy's all about killing and you, know, you go in, bam, and leave. Well, we want, we have to do it. We know it's stupid, but we have to do it. Come to the night of the taping. We do the joy act. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. About 400 people in the audience, <laughs> bigger than any TV taping I've ever. And all probably under 30. Barbara, not a dry eye in the house when we got to the, not a dry, uh, the tears are streaming down there when they're going, I, Barbara, I love you so much, even though I know I made fun of your, your, your family uh brutally but i i want you to know i love you and i love the fact that you're here and i and then hug and it's just like tears i'm like what's going on <laughs> like that's nothing you would experience here that's um so we did amazing. did 13 of those and then they went on and did a bunch of more and then i was then they brought uh dragon shanghai media brought me back to talk to 10 cent which is a big company it's kind of the YouTube of China and they own a lot of stuff here too um, about, about comedy, but essentially the same question you asked, but from the Chinese, like mm -hmm. how is it weird dealing with us um, in Beijing? And then I worked with um, dragon media, which is the biggest kind of independent mm -hmm. channel um, to do. Uh, they wanted to do kind of a prank show. They love pranks. They love pranks. Oh, so but pranks translate. Pranks. I can see that in physical comedy. Yeah. 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 But something you touched upon that I was curious about going back and now it, it's also relevant in the Chinese conversation is part of the role of showrunner, a great showrunner, is you're the buffer between the creative yeah. 
and the overlords, Correct. right? Whether it's the communist government or an American <laughs> television network. Um, you know, that, whether it's the communist government or. Okay. So now it's like you have <sighs> oh, diplomatic sorry. skills. I mean, they should really bring you in to mediate any kind of crisis around the world. And, um, yeah. yeah. It's a really good question. It's a really good question oh, because you. you know what? We're all human. And there are certain days you wake up and someone goes, uh, listen, that thing, you, you just want to punch them in the face. You just want to, it doesn't, it, it, they, they could say it makes total sense. It's completely valid and they mean nothing by it, but you just want to, come here. I'm not, I'm not going to hit you. I'm going to hit you. I say this to a lot of people. Not every email needs an immediate response, right? Uh, the other thing I say is, of course, nobody gives a shit about your shit except you. And then the third thing I say a lot about is, it's just television. So when some, let's be gracious, idiot network exec sends you notes that are just like, did you read the script? Like, what are you talking about? You can answer that way. And God knows I have. But what I've learned is, you know what? It's okay just to go for a walk, <laughs> come back to it, go, okay, what are, what's going through this person's mind that they're writing this? And I think I've said this to you before. I don't like focus groups. I'm not alone in that. But I will tell you this. The one thing focus groups are great at is when all 12, however many people are in that room go, yeah, that part confused me. You have a problem. And that's when you should listen, whether or not they think it's funny or they, I don't know, she's not hot or any bullshit like that. I don't care. That's just, it just goes right by me. But when they go, I didn't know what was happening. You have a problem as a storyteller. You have a problem as a joke teller. You have a problem as a producer because the, it's the moment most, most people will change the channel when they're like, I don't, well, I don't understand what's happening. Click. And so you don't want that. So you want to make it clear that obviously if you're telling a story where you don't want to, there's spoiler alerts and you don't want it, but that's okay. But the audience expectation of that kind of story will allow them to coast mm -hmm. with you. But if you're doing a comedy and they go, I don't know what's happening. That's not good. Cause they're not going to get the jokes. So I, and I think listening to people is really, really important in that regard. And then back to the, um, again, graciously, the idiot network executive who sends these notes and you go, what's going on in their heads? Did they just kind of write notes on each page before they actually read the thing? And so these are just momentary, I don't know, they're vomiting up these ideas. Or is there something here that they, to go back to the focus group, for example, they don't know what's going on, right? And so I find very often, don't answer the email right away. Mm-hmm. Um, unless of course you can. And it's, it's like, yes, of course. Thank you. No, go away, whatever, but take a break and think about what it is that they are, or are more importantly are not saying, and don't get crazy about it and don't get, you know, paranoid about it. Just kind of be as rational as a human being can be, which is not very, and break it down and go, well, how would I, if they, if they ask this guy and I didn't, you know, my initial response is to punch him in the nose, but now I'm taking a walk. I don't feel like punching him in the nose. What would my answer be? And so, and again, no one cares about the shit I'm going through as I don't care whatever shit they're going through. And it's only TV and not every email needs an immediate response. Now I'm going to sit down. I'm going to respond with those things in my mind and going great questions. It's usually how I start, start with a, you know, compliment, if you will. We call go, it acknowledging and validating. Acknowledge it, okay, right. The old Acknowledge A and B. It. Acknowledge it. Go, great, great notes. Um, here's some responses we can discuss, and then you just kind of bullet through. Also, the other thing is, don't overwrite any email. Um, people don't read emails. 
they read the first couple sentences and that's it. Um, <clears throat> if you have to go note by note, if they've written a big long email of notes, just try and do brief. Um, my response is in all caps to your notes, that kind of thing. So they can, they know exactly where to look. I still do that to my kids now. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But I also want to point out that I'm um, going back to the beginning of the conversation and the notion of respect, because part yeah. of what you're doing there that not everyone does, but it's part of your, your magic and why you've done such great work is you protect your staff. I, if someone says to me, and I've had this many, this has actually happened a lot where um, I'll get a network exec, tell me, look at an edit and go, we need a new editor. And I was like, no, no, no. I, there is someone who we need to replace in this conversation, <laughs> but it's not the editor. Um, no, but I think it's, I will defend my editors because editors are everything to me. I mean, they save my ass on an hourly basis and they're there because I've worked with them before and they're really smart and they have something to give. Each single one of them has a different vision of what the show is and combined it works. Editors love to talk to each other. So that's a good thing. They create kind of a hive mind, which is fantastic if you, if you do it right. And um, so yeah, I, will protect, I will protect my writers. I will protect my cameramen. I will protect everyone. If it's someone who doesn't know what they're doing, who has their job because, I don't know, their boss died and they got promoted, comes in and tells me how to do a TV show and starts telling me, that, that that's their, they're allowed to say that, but when they start telling me I need to fire people to do my TV show, fuck you. No, I'm going to protect these people as long as I possibly can. Because sometimes, unfortunately, we all, isn't it, we all answer to someone. I may not be in a position where I can protect everyone. But damn it, if I, you know, I, I will throw a temper tantrum before that happens. And so it's very, very important because here's, and it all, by the way, very self-serving. I don't want to make it sound like I'm this wonderful human being. I'm not. And that is this, the minute the crew, and by that, I mean, everyone, the staff goes, oh, well, they, you know, Jim let Mark get fired. That means the unraveling begins the dot 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 begins the unraveling of well i'm not safe i'm not gonna listen to anything he says i'm gonna pony up to this person or i'm gonna leave or i'm gonna this place is bad and then the vibes start getting really dark but if they go wow jim like mark that woman was going after mark and jim stood up and said don't you know you have an issue you have an issue with me you don't have an issue with mark and that gets you back to He's not asking me to work on Saturday and Sunday, but I will. I'm going to because he stood up for blah, blah, blah. And that's really, really, really important. It's so simple to do because, by the way, you don't, I know I talk a lot about punching people in the face, but you don't need to be aggressive about it. You can just say, I think there's another way to solve this problem. I don't think it's, I'm not in the mood to fire someone to solve this problem because now you're going to tell me I need to replace that person. And I'm going to spend four weeks finding that person. I don't have four weeks. And if it's as simple as, oh, well, there's a hundred of them and just hire, well, then why are we firing him? Because if that person is replaceable by a hundred people who I don't even know yet, how important could he be? Like just kind of out logic them. Conversely, there are times you have to fire people. There are times you have to fire people. I've fired people for doing and saying incredibly inappropriate things on set where you just go, I don't even get it. I don't even get it. I don't even do an investigation. I'm like out now. Um, um, but then you also have to fire people when, you know, you told them, Oh, the job's 10 weeks long and the money's run out. And now it's only seven weeks long. Like there's always uncomfortable 
things. And that's the thing about show running is balancing a lot of different agendas, agendas, and then one meta agenda, which is the show. But you all those other agendas that you're you're juggling all feed into that meta agenda, which is an attempt to you not only have to make the best show you possibly can, but you have to make the best show that you know works, but also is on budget and on time. And it's answering all the various people who are in your ear saying, you should change this, you should change that. Um, that is also the advertisers are happy about it, that the legal department is happy about. Like oh there's gosh, a lot of different things. And, and it's, I always say for show running on the first one in the door and the last one out the door on every show. I'm you usually are the, one, the captain of the ship. I am unfortunately the captain of the ship. Don't and tell anyone. I, I won't tell anyone, but will you come back? Because we're on the verge of becoming a Chinese show at an hour and 37 I'm sorry. minutes. Of course I can. No, not. Oh, I literally, I, I'm so excited for part two. <laughs> okay. You promise? Yeah, yeah. Whenever you want. Oh, you got it. All right. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. And I get to thank my audience for listening. Yeah. And so um, please always join me here at Camera Ready and Able. And if you're interested in media coaching for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off. And as always, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Thank you.